This is your travel radio podcast, dedicated to connecting you, the traveler, to travel professionals. You will hear from authors, destination specialists, linguists, CEOs, and travel advisors that can turn these experiences into your vacation of a lifetime. Questions? Comments? Suggestions? Please email info at travelradiopodcast.com. If you like what you are hearing, please leave us a review. Now, enjoy today's audio journey on the Travel Radio Podcast. Hello, this is Megan Chapa just giving you a quick update before rolling into this episode of Travel Radio Podcast. This week, we are featuring, or I am featuring, David Weinsock. And David, if you haven't listened to his previous episode, is a Scottish castle hunter. His goal is to visit all of Scotland's 2,000 castles and castle ruins. And to date, he has something like 400 under his belt or something. So he's he's getting pretty far, and that's maybe in like three years. So he's he's doing a lot. But the purpose of him being on the podcast this week is... He has a book out that is, uh, it covers the real Scottish history that inspired fictionalized Game of Thrones events to include things like the mythical creatures and even the Red Wedding. So if you want to hear those, that's what this week is about. We'll do two chapters this week, two chapters next week because it got very long. Uh, The other thing I want to call attention to is a new blog post up, and that you can get to just by going to TravelRadioPodcast.com. It should be near the top, and it is on a new coffee shop opened in Headington, Oxford. And in the scope of the globe, I know that's like a really specific thing to talk about, but I wrote a blog on it because I was really impressed with the experience I had and with their mission, because it is a social enterprise, meaning that they are hoping to provide jobs to people coming out of the prison system so that they can have a fair shot at, you know, establishing themselves coming out of that. Uh, Cause there's, I mean, everything, if you ever seen orange is the new black or something like that, it's hard coming out of prison. And these guys have a mission to provide these people with jobs and skills to be successful. So it's a great place. There's a map included in the blog post because it is a little hard to get to, but it's worth it once you get the, once you get in there, it's a really excellent place to have like a cup of coffee that they tailor to you. I was a little unprepared to have someone ask me (laughs) all these questions and I didn't really know how to answer, but they said, well, we'll kind of take over and and help you make a selection. And it was great. So uh, that is called the workshop. It's in Headington. Consider going there before you head out to the kilns. And then the next thing I want to talk about is um, midway through, you'll hear an advertisement that I recorded for NordVPN. Uh, And if you don't have a VPN service while using public Wi-Fi, uh, it's a really good idea to to get one. I got one and then uh, had a conversation with them. And now they are official sponsors of the podcast. So I'm uh, really happy to work with them. And they have a great promotion for 70% off for travel radio podcast listeners. And that's all the updates I'm going to give. Um, Hope you guys had a great summer. We had a great summer and I'm happy to be putting episodes out again. And yeah, just thank you so much for listening. Thank you everyone in Australia for listening. Uh, Really a lot more listeners this week in Australia. So thank you so much. And thank you to everyone who's left a review. I appreciate it. And it helps the podcast get found in iTunes and 
you know, Spreaker and I don't even know, iHeartRadio, everywhere you can find the podcast, it's there and all the reviews matter. And I'm thankful for every one of you. So that's all. Without further ado, enjoy this week's episode with David Weinsack, Scottish, Scottish, Scottish Castle Hunter. Hello and welcome to Travel Radio. I am your host, Megan Chapa, and I am privileged today to welcome back um, my guest, David Weinsack. David is a Scottish castle historian and author of the new release, The History Behind Game of Thrones, The North Remembers. David, for listeners that haven't heard your previous episode, will you take a minute to introduce yourself? Sure thing. Well, first of all, hello. Thanks very much for tuning in. I'm glad we can spend a bit of time geeking out together about Scottish history. It's always good fun. Uh, And that's the whole point, really, is, you know, I'm someone who's come at history um, from the perspective of storytelling and from the perspective of you know, a kid growing up in Canada who always dreamed about knights and dragons and castles but could never actually get his hands on one. Uh, <laughs> still haven't got my hands on a dragon for the record, but you know, <laughs> that's pretty good. Um, so I moved over to Scotland uh, nearly nine years ago now, and um, I've been working ever since um, as sort of a jack-of-all-trades history nerd, basically. Um, so I write for quite a few publications including the Scots Magazine, which is actually the world's oldest continually published magazine, Hmm. Um, History Scotland, BBC History Magazine, and I do a bit of presenting as well. So so if organizations like Archaeology Scotland need someone to stand in front of a castle and tell people why it's cool for five minutes, then I can do that. Um, And of course, the book was a massive project over the last year and a half as well. Um, So a Canadian-born Scottish castle hunter effectively sums it up. Yeah, so... I mean, just hearing you say it makes me chuckle because I've seen your YouTube videos, your Twitter videos, your Periscope, your your live things, and um, mm-hmm. which you know, kind of, when I put on Twitter, hey, what should I ask this guy when interviewing about this book? You wrote, ask that guy when he's going to get a real job. <laughs> well, it's it's that healthy Canadian and Scottish sense of self-deprecation, you know that. I'm yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, there, there is that sense, you know, when you're lucky enough to do something um, that you had aspired to do for many, many years, um, it does often feel like you're getting away with it. And so there, there were a few moments, you know, particularly while writing the book, where my partner would come home and I would be watching my eighth episode of Game of Thrones. That day. Was, Look, I'm researching, okay? I'm hard at work here. Um, very tough to sympathize with someone in that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, I really, um, you know, believe that history is something that can be immensely fun. It's not always presented as such. Um, so I'm trying to tap into that and show people that it's not all just people kneeling in trenches with trowels, digging up things one toothbrush hair at a time. Um, it can be a lot more fun than that. Speaking of toothbrush hairs, I want to give you a gross observation that I saw on Twitter. Some once some archaeologists posted that they found a Roman comb and they took it to their local, like, I guess, I don't know, archaeologist guild or something, museum. And it was a uh, Roman lice comb complete with lice. So. Oh, fantastic. See, sometimes history is more interesting than fiction. Sometimes. 
Yeah, well, there was, and I don't know the details of it, it was one of those real sort of attention grabbers in the headlines, where very recently there was um, a team of historians who baked a loaf of bread out of something like a 4,000-year-old strain of yeast that had been recovered from an Egyptian archaeological site. And they used it, cultivated it somehow, and actually baked bread and ate it. Wow. <laughs> you know, um, first of all, isn't that cool i mean you're yeah. literally you're eating history um but it That's goes wild. to people are doing all kinds of strange and wonderful things out there yeah and i mean going from toothbrush bristles to lice combs to yeast strains i saw one where um an underwater recovery team uh, they recovered some uh shipwreck and it had like 50 bottles of champagne in it and the guys drank the champagne because the corks were intact yeah. And whether they were, you know, good actors or not, they didn't wince. So I'm like, well, maybe it was good. I don't know. So that's and it was, you know, a couple hundred years old. And I thought, oh, well, I, I think I think you could probably get away with classing that experimental archaeology <laughs> anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about where fiction and history intersect, and that is the real history behind the Game of Thrones. Um, first off, David, were you a reader or a watcher? Sounds like you definitely watched, but I imagine you also read. Yes, um, I was both. Um, started out watching. Um, I think it was just back in 2011, uh, the same year that I moved to Scotland, mm. uh, that started watching season one. And by the time I got to the end of season one, I realized, well, I've got to get my hands on these books. It seems mm. incredible. Um, and of course, that just fleshed out all kinds of other details that you don't get in the show. So um, it was a little bit of both, but started out with the show and then went into the books um, and devoured all of the books within about a month oh once gosh. I got my hands on the first one and then had to wait agonizingly <laughs> for each season to come out thereafter. Right. So did your knowledge of Scottish history advance further than the show or were you watching the show being like, I know where that came from. I totally identify with what he's doing in the story. Yeah. There were a few ways of approaching it. Um, it. It was kind of an organic process of realizing how well Game of Thrones would work as an explanator for Scottish history and vice versa. Because there were a few moments in the show where, you know, I truly leapt out of my seat and went, wow, that's, X thing, you know, yeah. <laughs> and uh, or oh, that battle tactic, I recognize that. Um, and so there were a few real sort of leap out of your seat moments. Um, but it was upon sort of reflecting on uh, the shows as well as the books, you know, having sort of gone through them all at least once and realizing that it wasn't just the, you know, the sort of fun little things that would get you points in a pub quiz that were the same. Mm -hmm. There were deeper parallels as well and so over the last you know better part of nine years i like to think i've cultivated a reasonable appreciation and understanding for some aspects of scottish history more than others um, ancient and evil primarily um and when you're steeped in that and you're watching or reading game of thrones there's just no way that you could get through it without recognizing some of the same fundamental underlying themes. Mm -hmm. And so it was just, a, you know, after a couple seasons of realizing that there is a lot to work with here, um, that I thought it would make the perfect project, an intersection of pop culture and history um, as a, a good sort of first book. Um, mm. and, and yeah, it was incredibly fun to write. So then how did it come across like... So you had this interest, but how did the project actually come into fruition? 
Yeah, um, I think it was one of these quarter-life crises where um, I graduated from university a couple of years prior. I'd done a master's degree in international relations at the University of Edinburgh, um, decided I did not want to become a politician and... I think for many reasons, I'm thankful I didn't get into that these days. Oh my gosh, David, your head would explode. I've seen your posts on Twitter. You're already, you're already in it. (laughs) Far too sensitive a soul to get involved in that uh, mudslinging match, I'll tell you. Um, But uh, so then I started, you know, meandering more towards history in my day-to-day activities and and work. Um, And I knew I wanted to write a book, Um, but I was aware that I don't have, um, as of yet, you know, a formal academic qualification as a historian, per se. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought, right, I can't go and write, you know, the next great biography on such and such a king because it just won't be taken seriously. And that's not necessarily the kind of thing I wanted to do anyway. Mm-hmm. And so I started to think about why I got into history in the first place. And at the end of the day, it was reading things like The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and other fantasy series as a kid. And that just sort of steeping me in the broad strokes of history because at the end of the day a lot of fantasy novels and films for instance um you know are are drawing on history in many many ways Mm -hmm. um and i thought you know that's what gets me the most excited and when you think about what brings a lot of people to scotland as well as visitors um you have a ton of people visiting because of stories um because of things like Braveheart or Outlander, Highlander, you know, no matter how historically imperfect some of those things might be um, in terms of the representations of history, Mm -hmm. gets the claws in, you know, and it it pulls people into a world that they might never have engaged with otherwise. So I thought with Game of Thrones being on seemingly everyone's lips, it was a fantastic opportunity to show people, hey, if you think you're not a fan of history, but you've been watching or reading Game of Thrones... You really are. Yeah, and really. Why? Well, I think that I. I mean, I know that some you know very serious historians do not right. like when we fictionalize history or turn it into like you know kind of pop culture for consumer whatever you know. But mm-hmm. I. But when you read a history book, sometimes it just gets a little dry because it's just very factual. But and when you tell it as a story, a compelling story, and give flesh and bones to a character again, you know, essentially again, I mean, it, it, you're right. It hooks people. And I think as long as we're learning and if we, especially if someone wants to go visit Scotland and wants to learn the real history, per se, of, of I was going to say Lord of the Rings because you said Lord of the Rings earlier, but of Game of Thrones... Um, I think it's great, and I'm I'm all for that. So, yeah. Exactly, and I mean, this has always been happening. It's not as though this is just a phenomenon that's peculiar to the Netflix generation by any stretch. Um, you know, if we were, and I, I do sort of mention this in the introduction of the book, actually, you know, if we were living in the early 1800s, we'd all be visiting Scotland because of Walter Scott's novels. We'd mm. want to find the lake where the Lady of the Lake rose out of, um, you know, and, mm. and even going back far earlier than that, people, for as long as stories have been told, have been pursuing the truth behind those stories. Um, so whenever, you know, I do hear someone, you know, giving a tourist a bit of, uh, you know, gripe because they're only here because of Outlander or something like that, it's like, look, this is a brilliant learning tool at the end of the day and right. gets you here. And in fact, there are a lot of historic sites in Scotland and um, Dune Castle where they did film 
only one scene, unfortunately, from Game of Thrones, very, oh. very beginning, season one, episode one, when the Baratheons um, and the royal family arrive at Winterfell, that courtyard they arrive in where the Starks are all there to greet them is Dune Castle, just north mm. of Southern. Um And uh, Dune Castle was actually also a filming location for Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, <laughs> I so love when that I hear <laughs> Dune Castle, I think of the Frenchmen cursing them from the parapets and knocking <laughs> coconut shells together and all that good stuff. And they do actually give you coconut shells there. I was going to uh, say, it was like the 75th anniversary or 70th anniversary, something like that. And, um, and the guy couldn't believe how many people came to the gate asking for coconut shells. And it was yeah. the same gatekeeper as it had been during the filming. So he's probably oh, still there. Yeah, That's a great example of a, a heritage site which is getting far more footfall than it ever would um, purely because it's been featured in popular stories. And I think, you know, that can only be a good thing. Yeah, awesome. And I said 70th anniversary. If any of those actors ever heard me accuse them of being that old. Yeah. So <laughs> let's check your facts, people. I'm wrong on that one. <laughs> Well, right. Well, let's, um, let's talk about when you were researching, was there anything that surprised you or that you had an assumption about, but it turned out otherwise when you were researching? Yeah. Um, one of the things, I think on a positive note, that, that really impressed me actually about the care that George R. R. Martin took while crafting the world of Westeros was actually how well he understands history. Mm. Um, for instance, there's a real tendency in fantasy in particular, I think, to, to take history as a basis, but then to make it much simpler or mm. much more binary um, than it actually ever was. Um, mm. And George R. R. Martin was only ever really interested in writing about the shades of gray. He's not interested in the huh. black and white. Um, you know, he said it himself. The only thing worth writing about is the human heart in conflict with itself. Um, And so I was just continually impressed, actually, with the amount of research that he had clearly done, Um, whether for this series or just otherwise, I'm not sure. Um, But one of the moments that really struck me um, was um, it's in both the books and the show where John and his wildling lover, Egret, are south of the wall. They've climbed over it. They're going raiding. um, And they're riding on horseback and they pass this little stone tower. Mm. And Egret, who has never been south of the wall, you know, she's only used to mud and straw huts and, you know, very, very sort of primitive dwellings, sees, you know, what to us is very clearly just the ruins of a windmill um, and goes, oh, wow, you know, a big lord must live there or a king um, and in the show i think it's a windmill but in the book it's actually a tower house that they pass by and john kind of scoffs and goes ha a king living there no that's only a tower house some little lord and his little family with his little concerns live there and you know fantasy so often focuses you know, especially medieval set fantasy on the huge brooding fortresses these impossible castles in the sky and I just thought it was really cool that actually George R. R. Martin took the time to inject tower houses, a very sort of everyday run-of-the-mill mini castle, effectively, of which there are hundreds throughout Scotland and indeed mm-hmm. the rest of, um, of Britain. Um, and you know that just showed me that even though he didn't always have the opportunity to show how much he knew, he clearly had done his homework and injected those small details, which just made the world he created from a historical standpoint that much more believable. That's great. That's really good to hear. Um, So then 
um, let's get into some, we picked four chapters. So, um, we selected four chapters because really we could talk for days and days on this book. There's a lot to cover, but, um, we, we picked four to talk about. So let's start with chapter one, which is Sterling Castle. And specifically, we're going to talk about locations because this is a travel show where people like to, you know, this is for people to explore places that might be on a bucket list and Game of Thrones locations are there. So let's go chapter one, Sterling Castle. Uh, but before we get there, because in this chapter, you also introduce this map. Um, I want to bring up the map because it's incredible. So if you are a listener and you want to visualize it, there is a section in the middle of the book. It's kind of like a resource section where it has pictures, um, of the castles, but also this map, which is an actual map of Britain, which David, I'll let you talk about that. And then I'll let you talk about the the other map that's available um, to, to kind of compare. So, David, can you talk a little bit about those maps? Yeah. Um, so the map which really drives home the strategic importance of Sterling for the last you know, 2,000-odd years um, is the product of a, a 13th century English chronicler um, and Benedictine monk. Um, his name is Matthew Paris. And um, the map you know, looks very strange to us because it's kind of like, you know, a, a almost dreamlike ethereal version of Britain. You can see the broad strokes, mm-hmm. but the details are kind of all over the place. Um, you know, the, the rivers are absolutely massive. Wales seems to have just been kind of tightened out of existence, unfortunately. <laughs> and there are a few you know, very obviously strange features on this 13th century map. Um, have to give them credit, though. They were operating, obviously, without any of the modern technologies that map makers use nowadays. So all things considered, he did reasonably well. Um, and what Matthew Paris shows, which is absolutely remarkable and shows you know, so much of the reason why Sterling was so important, is about three quarters or so of the way up the map, so moving northwards through Britain, there's kind of like a, a pinch point um, with water coming in from both sides, the east mm. and the west. And it's the only place on that entire map where there's only one way to get from the south of the landmass of Britain to the north. And he's drawn a bridge there. And that is meant to be Stirling Bridge, um, which many of you will probably know as the uh, scene of William Wallace's most famous victory, um, at the Battle of Stirling Bridge, which took place on the 11th of September, uh, 1297. Um, and Scottish chroniclers and medieval chroniclers generally actually referred to this supposed pinch point in the land as the Scottish Sea. Um, and it's meant to represent the Firth of Forth, which, which straddles Edinburgh to the north. Um, now, if you look at a modern map, it's very clear that there was never anything close to that kind of body of water. Um, Scotland is not, in fact, cut in two by, uh, you know, a great river or anything like that. But it, it's meant to really highlight the fact that if you had a big army going from the south of Britain to the north or vice versa, and you wanted to invade Scotland in particular, you really had to reckon with that one bridge. Um, so it's kind of, you know, it's not meant to be taken literally because there were other places to get across. Um, but it's a great representation um, of how the medieval minds thought strategically about land masses. And so I would argue that Stirling, you know, is the most strategically important castle in Scotland. And if you do go there today, um, it's up on top of a extinct volcano. So mm. it just pool points for that, you know, a big castle on top of a volcano, 
can't beat that as far as sure. I'm concerned. Um, and when you get up to the top of the rocky crag that comprised the old volcano, you've got panoramic views all around you. You could see an invading army coming from many, many miles from any direction. And you really see how the hills converge on the site. The water converges on the site. And it feels like you're at a focal point in the landscape. And from there, you can look off the ramparts of the castle and see Stirling Bridge. You can see the fields of Bannockburn where Robert Bruce defeated Edward II's army in 1314. So many mm. iconic nation-forging battles. And so if you're wanting to understand one of the main forces of Scottish history, and particularly how geography has been a driving force behind Scottish history, I truly think that the best place in the country that you can go is up onto the ramparts of Stirling Castle and just look out from them. Now, will you tell us about the second map? Um, and in my book, it didn't actually make it. There was an insert that um, that was included that said I should go download this. And this is a beautiful map that you actually had commissioned. Will you um, compare it a little bit to us for to the um, 12th, sorry, 13th century map? Yeah, of course. So um, the map that I had produced was by a um, historical illustrator named Bob Marshall, um, who does absolutely jaw-dropping, usually 3D renderings of castles and abbeys and historic sites. Um, but I've worked with him on a few projects, and when I told him that I'd like to have a book in my map, he was up for something a little fun on the side, something a bit different, you know, mm-hmm. than what he did. So um, he produced this beautiful map, and it is, um, you know, a more geographically accurate map of Scotland. You will recognize all the features from okay. modern satellite maps. Um, so it's not as um, sort of stylized and metaphorical in the way that uh, Matthew Paris's map is. But what it does um, is it shows... Um, a lot, not all, but a lot of the locations that I discuss in the book um, so that you can sort of plan a trip around Scotland based around these Game of Thrones linked locations. And I've tried my very, very best to include sites from pretty well every corner of the country. Um, so it's not just the usual culprits of, you know, Central Belt, Loch Ness, Isle of Skye, off you go. Um, there are many places off the beaten track, which, if anything, are better for evoking that feeling of being in Westeros. Um, so this is meant to be a bit more of a practical guide, but it is also stylized slightly um, just to give it that sort of fantastical feeling. And um, a lot of what went into the book um, was my firsthand experience of traveling around Scotland. I've been doing it pretty well nonstop for the last eight years. Um, and I've now been to, I've just cracked my 400th castle actually, which was very exciting. That's incredible. Last week. Um, it, it's absolutely bonkers. Why would anyone do this? Because um, <laughs> they like to be stung by nettles up to their waist. Exactly. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> I've got some marks to show for it, that's for sure. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I truly think that actually going and visiting these places firsthand is the best way to um, do what George R. R. Martin referred to as finding the colors again. Um, mm. he, when he was creating this amazing, fantastical world of Westeros. Um, His philosophy was basically that fantasy allows you to see the amazing in the everyday. Um, And we read it to get in touch with that sense of awe that so many of us carried around as children, Mm -hmm. but maybe have lost touch with to a certain extent um, through the vagaries of adulthood. So what I'm hoping is that in part by using this map and reading the book, you'll be able to go out to these places, which you might have otherwise just driven straight past. Mm. 
um, stop, reflect, and just really realize how truly wonderful Scotland, you know, at the very least is, but hopefully you'll carry that with you wherever you go as well. So travel is very much sort of at the heart of um, what informed this book, actually. And I'm curious, you know, in in your experience, if you've been to anywhere in uh, Scotland, which really sort of evokes that fantastical feeling for you. Hello, it's Megan Chapa, host of Travel Radio Podcast. I recently subscribed to NordVPN, and I can't believe I haven't done this sooner. I've used public Wi-Fi with my personal data unprotected. I was willing to take the risk because my cell coverage wasn't good or non-existent, and I needed to be online. I feel so foolish because all along there was a way to mask my data, and it cost me less than a cup of coffee for an entire month of service. Connectivity while traveling is sometimes challenging, even with international cell phone coverage. This leaves travelers using public Wi-Fi. Public Wi-Fi networks are a lifesaver in a lot of ways, but did you know that they are completely unprotected? Did you know that anyone using them can see all of your data and the internet pages you are surfing? This is why you need a VPN service. In short, a VPN hides both your location and encrypts the data you send through the internet. Need to make a purchase online or want to watch television that is restricted in your current location? Then simply turn on NordVPN, select the server country you want to be located in, and ta-da! You're using internet with double encrypted data and location privacy. I was having these same issues and started searching for a VPN service. The reason I chose NordVPN was because of their endorsements through PC Magazine and MapWorld. I am now proud to have NordVPN as a sponsor of Travel Radio Podcast, offering the same services to Travel Radio Podcast listeners. For more information, additional features, and to receive 70% off, visit nordvpn.org forward slash travel podcast. Use promo code TRAVELPODCAST to receive 70% off a three-year plan. This promotion is subject to change, and again, that is nordvpn.org slash travelpodcast, or you can find it on the sidebar to the right in the show podcast notes. And because I have the opportunity to say thank you again for listening, thanks for listening to Travel Radio Podcast. Enjoy the rest of the program. This is a cruise port adventure. Glasgow? Maybe. Basically, it was a parent parental fail. They didn't want to see another castle. They didn't want to go to another ruin. And mm-hmm. so we ended up taking them back onto the ship. Um, and then it left us with about an hour and a half. And we're like, what are we going to do for an hour and a half? So we're just in Glassock. And which actually, I think that we saw, so when we came in, we saw actually some filming locations that were all walled off for one of the last portions of Game of Thrones. So that was neat to see. You couldn't see in it. There was a kind of like a castle scene built in there, but uh, it was neat to go past. But um, we kind there was all these taxi, you know, taxis waiting there. And typically, you know, it's, it's safer to do something that's commissioned by the cruise ship or by one of these kind of verified companies. But uh, I guess there was a number of taxis that actually work with the cruise lines and are verified, like they won't take you out and murder you in a field somewhere. I don't know. So we, so we, this guy said, Hey, for 35 pounds, I'll take you for an hour just, and I'll, I'll take you wherever you want to go. Do you want to go to the castle? Do you want to go wherever we said, well, where would you go? And he said, I'll just take you to all the places I want as a child. And so we start just driving out into the country and we drove and drove and drove and thought, okay, well now we're getting really far from civilization and we don't really know this guy. But, um, 
But we went and it was amazing. We got kind of, we couldn't even go any further at one point because there was these just like goats and sheep in the road and the guy's making fun of him like stupid Scottish goat. And he's looking at him and he turns, the goat turns his head to look at us and he already has one of his horns knocked off and he's still standing in the road. Like he's not going to let us pass. And eventually he did, but we just drove through rolling Hills and, um, there were little ruins there, but it was so picturesque. And he did drive us to, um, I don't think it was a castle. It was kind of like a merchant's house. And I think maybe his wife murdered him. I don't know. He wasn't very nice. Someone got him in the end and he might have gotten what he deserved. But um, it was just so picturesque and there was no one but us. And all these people on this cruise ship were doing all these very touristy things. And we were just us in this car driving, you know, through the countryside. And it was magical. So it's not really like a destination other than the country, the lowlands of Scotland. And they were really, truly picturesque. And I mean, that's, I think the part of the part of me that's an introvert really likes nature in the sense that it refreshes me and having been with, you know, in a stressful situation with my children, it was really nice to kind of have this like car date with my husband. And we, you know, we didn't necessarily even need to talk. We just got to take it all in. And it was, it was very gorgeous. Yeah, just let the imagination wander a little bit. That's what it's all about, really. Thanks for asking a question. I wasn't too prepared for it, but not a lot of guests are bold enough <laughs> to ask me a question. So I appreciate that. That's good. <laughs> so now that we've covered maps and some kind of, you know, the goal, uh, of, of writing game of Thrones, what about, can we talk about comparing, you know, we've got Sterling castle. How does that relate to game of Thrones? What is that? What's that choke point? Can we, um, can we talk about that? Yeah, um, so the, the idea there is Sterling, you know, being at this very sort of narrow neck in the land, basically, somewhere that you have to reckon with. And in Game of Thrones, we see this um, play out in a hugely consequential way. Uh, now, I guess I should put up a spoiler alert of some kind. You know, I'll try not uh-huh. to uh, discuss too, too much of the nitty gritty, but but some of it is going to be inevitable. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, in Game of Thrones, there are two areas where which serve the the same fundamental function as Stirling Castle. Uh, One of them is called the Neck, and it's this very boggy, vast expanse um, of ground which separates the south from the north. And if you talk to the Northmen, they'll tell you that their best defense throughout the millennia was actually the boggy ground of the neck because it stops invading armies in their tracks. And Mm. there's one little tiny narrow road that runs through the neck. Um, And if you go off that road, you're falling into the swamps. You'll get devoured by lizard lions and all kinds of horrible beasties. You'll get picked off by a poison dart shot from a Kranigman. Um, So it's incredibly hazardous. And in fact, the area around Sterling used to be quite like that, with, of course, the exception of the lizard lions. Um, but right up to <laughs> the 19th century, as far as we know, anyway, um, but, um, you know, right up to the 19th century, uh, it was a lot boggier around Sterling. And so, um, you know, you really did have to either go along the old Roman road and cross at Sterling Bridge or take a navy, um, which was incredibly expensive, and go all the way around. Um, so it's the same sort of channeling um, phenomenon going on with both Sterling and the Neck. Um, and that 
you know, can stop an invasion in its tracks. Um, the other sort of parallel point there with Game of Thrones is with the twins, which is the castle owned by Walder Frey, mm. um, who perpetrated the Red Wedding most infamously. Yes. And, uh, you know, that all came about because Rob Stark was trying to get to the south, um, into the Riverlands to uh, raid some of the Lannister lands. Um, but in order to get to the south, if he didn't want to go hundreds of miles out of his way and probably lose a lot of his troops just to attrition, he needed to negotiate with the Freys to cross at the vital bridge that they had constructed over a main river in the area. And he agreed to marry one of Walder Frey's granddaughters, um, went back on that arrangement, married someone out of love, which he should have known better. It's the medieval world, guys. Come on. <laughs> It never has a happy ending. Um, but, um, you know, and that's the event that led up to the Red Wedding. Um, but he knew that, you know, he had to pay this price, basically, to get across. Um, so it's just the best example in both Scotland and in Westeros of how geography can have an absolutely massive impact on history. Because without the boggy morass around Stirling, you almost certainly wouldn't have had the Battle of Stirling Bridge or the Battles of Bannockburn. Mm. Out there, um, without the boggy ground of the neck and the ingeniousness of the phrase building the bridge and their castle crossing the river Trident, you wouldn't have had the Red Wedding. Uh, and, and incidentally, I did have a bit of a surreal moment recently, actually, because um, oh. there was a, a fantasy festival in Edinburgh, and I was uh, participating in that, and I did a bit of a talk on the stage, um, and uh, all the other speakers were people like James Cosmo who is the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch in the beginning of Game of Thrones. And, Not bad. And David Bradley, who played uh, Walder Frey, of course, um, you know, was there as well. And there was a moment where I was sitting on the other side of the room um, at my desk, and they were doing signings you know, on the far side of the room. And they had a bit of a quiet moment, and so I watched as Lord Commander Mormont and Walder Frey shared a chuckle over something. And <laughs> I, it was just... You know, it was kind of unreal in that moment, seeing these two guys who would have been bitterly opposed to each other had they met in Game of Thrones laughing it out. And I understand, you know, they went to the pub later and all that good stuff. So, um, yeah, that, that was one of the stranger but definitely more gratifying moments uh, of my life recently. Cool. Good to hear. So if people are at Sterling Castle, what do you want them to be envisioning? How can they make this connection while they're on site? Yeah, so um, while you're driving or taking the train or however you're getting into Stirling, um, you will inevitably have to uh, sort of approach the very obvious Castle Rock pretty much head on. Um, and you will cross over, whether you notice it or not, it goes by in the blink of an eye, um, the Bannock Burn, um, mm. upon which the, the famous battle was fought. Um, and so start getting into the mindset that this is a place of battles. In fact, the Gallic uh, name for Stirling, which is Sruli, um, means place of battle or place of strife. Um, so you are in the battlelands when you arrive in Stirling. Um, and when you climb up that rock, um, realize that you are sort of on the banks of an ancient coastline. Um, mm -hmm. There's quite a distinct ridge that forms throughout Stirling. And that is actually the old shore of the ancient coast. And down where there are now subdivisions, they actually found way 
whale bones, for instance, when oh, they wow. drained um, the bogs in that area. Um, so you're in a land that has been transformed by the elements um, and getting up right onto the castle itself. Um, realizing, you know, that you are in the crucible of Scotland. You are in the place that more than any other location has been fought over for control of the country. Um, so you're at the most strategically important castle in one of the most strategically important geographical areas where many of the most famous battles in Scottish history have been fought um, and where the lesson is driven home more than anywhere else um, that a uh, defending general's greatest ally is not necessarily his soldiers, but the land that he chooses to fight on. Um, and if you understand that, then that is a great jumping off point for understanding why so many of the battles in Scottish history have been fought in the places and in the ways that they have been. And also why in Game of Thrones they went to such radical lengths to deal with these pesky frays in their river crossing. Because mm. if not for that river crossing and the castle that the frays built there, they would have remained a fairly irrelevant minor house. But it was taking advantage of that geographical pinch point that turned them into one of the power brokers of the land. So, so that's the sort of mindset that I would be in while visiting Sterling. Um, and it is fantastic because it's got so much of its original medieval fabric still intact. Um, so you really do feel like you're in a, a proper castle there as well, which does certainly help. Nice. Um, and in, in Sterling Castle, I mean, this sort of ties in I know, with another one of the chapters that we were going to discuss. Um, that's where one of the events which inspired the Red Wedding actually happened. Um, the murder of the Earl William Douglas at the hands of King James II. Um, mm. So you are also in the castle where the real Red Wedding happened effectively. Okay. All right. Uh, which means I have a typo later on, but correct me if I get it wrong because I have the, I have the wrong castle listed. So, yeah, well, no, you've actually got it right. Oh, um, I do. Okay, wait, don't tell me it. Don't tell me it. <laughs> okay, okay, don't tell me it. We'll move in order, or else I'll, or else I'll forget to ask you important things. Okay, all right. Good information on Sterling. The neck, boom, done. All right, let's move on to part three, chapter eight. And in this segment, you compare the Lord of the Isles and the Islesmen to the Ironborn. So you said in a real battle, you would pick the Islesmen. Can you tell me why? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, um, actually, um, there's a, a little passage that I could read here. Great. Uh, let's do it. That could work well because it, it pretty much gets exactly to, to this point. Um, so this is on page 82 of the book. Um, I'll just, I'll go for it. Um, so uh, if it came down to a battle between the Islesmen of Scotland and the Ironborn of Westeros, my money would be on the Islesmen. In terms of raw martial talent, they're on approximately equal footing. Mm. Both cultures excelled in producing warriors who were more than a match for their mainland counterparts on an individual basis. A chieftain in the Scottish Isles was supported by an extremely close-knit group of household warriors, typically numbering around 12, called the Lainhez, men who visibly cultivated the warrior persona that the bards were so fond of immortalizing. A similar system seems to be in play in the Iron Islands of Westeros, seemingly embodied by the force led by Asher Greyjoy, named Yara in the television series, just to make things confusing, um, to free Theon from the sadistic grip of Ramsay Bolton. It's comprised of fiercely loyal men whom Asher has known and fought alongside for many years. A fight between a Norse Gaelic Lainfez and Asher's picked group would be a brutal and close-fought melee, but in a larger pitched battle, the Islesmen would almost certainly triumph over the Ironborn of Westeros. 
Stannis Baratheon, regarded as one of Westeros' finest military minds, made a prudent observation about the Ironborn at war. He said, as sailors and warriors, the Ironborn are unparalleled, but they are not soldiers. They have no discipline, no strategy, no unity. In battle, each man fights only for his own glory. The Ironborn's accomplishments when fighting on the mainland pale in comparison to those of the historical Norse and Islesmen, their strength seeming to quite literally drain away the further they get from the coasts. Compare that with the conquests of the Islesmen, who at their height dominated more than a third of what we now consider to be Scotland, including huge swathes of the mainland in Argyll, Loch Aber, Northwest Highlands, the Great Glen, and Ross. Far from being easily swept aside by mainland armies, large forces from the Isles could wreak havoc. A great raid on Urquhart Castle on the banks of Loch Ness, the largest and strongest castle on the Highlands in 1545, saw the Islesmen carry away over 8,500 head of livestock. In the summer of 1411, Donald of Isla gathered a force of more than 10,000 Islesmen and marched them as far east as Inverurie in Aberdeenshire on the opposite coast, where he fought the bloody Battle of Harlaw against the Earl of Mar. The Islesmen were able to inflict major casualties against Mars mounted knights, so much so that the battle is remembered amongst many bloody engagements between Islesmen and mainlanders as Red Harlaw. The Ironborn, for all their fury, are known to melt away in the face of similar heavy, heavy cavalry charges, and could not have hoped to fight the Earl of Mars' small but professional army to a stalemate so far from home. So I think that's basically the gist of it. You know, on an individual level, it could go either way. Um, but if you were to actually go on campaign, if it came down to a war between the Ironborn of Westeros and the Islesmen of Scotland, and I know it can be a bit of a chore keeping those two straight as well, um, <laughs> then um, that's why I believe the Islesmen would be more effective. Um, they had a, a much sort of better understanding of military tactics as opposed to just individual combat, and they were able to control broad swathes of the mainland for hundreds of years, whereas the Ironborn just never quite got there. They would get a little bit, and then they would fizzle out the first time a proper knightly charge came bearing down on them. Yeah, and I think this kind of gets into culture a little bit in the sense that there was a culture of community, it seems, in the Islesmen versus the out-for-yourself of the Ironborn, which leads me to you know an observation that you wrote about um, the Ironborn not having room for culture, like uh, for artists in their culture. Um, I know that, that it's fiction, but... I mean, there's, there really is joy in art and expression and that, so it made me a little sad, but, um, can you compare this a little bit in the same way? Yeah. Um, so the, the Ironborn in Westeros, it, it must be said, I mean, they've got some cool castles, they've got attitude. Um, I do quite like islands like the ones they live on just aesthetically. I find them very neat to visit, but man would spending time in one of those castles or on one of those islands be horribly dull. Um, because as far as I can tell, there's not even bards really in the iron islands of Westeros. There's no one singing songs. There's no one producing works of art. There's no one illuminating manuscripts. Um, you know, there's no one reciting, clan lineages before battles um there doesn't really seem to be any sense of what we would refer to as high culture really it's a very sort of um ascetic 
culture, one that um, really sort of shuns anything that they see as luxurious or unnecessary um, to the point where when Theon comes home for the first time, he gets a rude awakening because the clothes that he's wearing, you know, are by no means over the top fancy. But his dad sort of looks him up and down and he's like, what's this nonsense? Right. Here? You know, and it's like, oh, come on, I can't even dress up a little bit. Yeah. Um, it's an incredibly dreary place. And it is very much sort of a, a society which seems to be dominated by a rabidly individualistic outlook. Mm. Um, whereas, you know, in the Western Isles of Scotland and the areas that became sort of a part of the lordship of the Isles in the 14th century, you know, we think of these places, you know, like the Isle of Isla and uh, the Outer Hebrides um, as being very remote places. And we don't imagine them as being centers of culture. Um, but actually, you know, it was artists and bards and singers and performers um, who were almost respected above anyone else in this society um, because it was in large part, a pre-literate society up until the 16th century. Mm. Uh, there was a tremendous amount of value placed on oral traditions and storytelling um, and of someone being able to stand in front of, you know, the battle lines and recite someone's lineage going back 20 generations into the era of myth and legend. Um, and, you know, here there's actually a passage from a very famous poem um, called It Is No Joy Without Clan Donald, mm. um, which says in the van of Clan Donald, learning was commanded, and in their rear were service and honor and self-respect. And so in the same poem that you're hearing about all these great deeds, you know, mighty axemen, you know, chopping their enemies in half and all this kind of stuff, it, it's saying, but above all, it was actually learning and culture that we valued. Hmm. Um, and it was in the west of Scotland, actually, in the Isles, that you had many of the earliest stone castles, that you had Iona, um, you know, which is one of the most important ecclesiastical centers, not just in Scotland, but in all of Europe, um, where books like the Book of Kells were illuminated. Um, it was a, a place not just of learning, but of tremendous creation. And that, unfortunately, is what the Ironborn seemed to be almost completely lacking. Um, so you would have far more fun dining in the great hall of a castle of one of the lords of the Isles in Scotland than you ever would um, doing the same thing amongst the Ironborn. Yeah, they're like singing historians. I, I like that you put, um, what? why would I even bother with these battles if someone wasn't going to sing about how great I am? You know, I'm paraphrasing, but... If it's not going to be recorded and sung about in some way, you know, a, a deed worthy of the songs, there's a reason that's an expression. All right, that's great for that chapter. And um, we all are only getting into these chapters a little bit because one, I want you to read the book because it's so good. And two, I don't want to give it all away. 